Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us today to, to sense you in the cross. This cross of, of Calvary through which we have been redeemed. And that is ever before us, leading us and drawing us to your great love. We pray that, that as we continue our worship, that your word will speak deeply to each of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I have to acknowledge to you today that I really haven't faced very much suffering and have experienced very little pain in my life. I look at you and I know that many of you have experienced and are experiencing agony of the soul that honestly I can't really begin to understand. Some of you have endured abuse. Some of you have buried a child or a spouse. You have nursed ailing parents through difficult diseases even some to death. You've been torn apart by, by betrayal in a relationship. You've heard the words, we're going to have to let you go. You've dealt with cancer and surgery. You've lived with excruciating physical pain. You've watched helplessly as, as your child made destructive decisions. Some of you may wish you had a child to work through difficult situations with. Many of you have experienced and are experiencing some very difficult circumstances. And in the midst of those circumstances, you have questioned and struggled. And your faith has been greatly challenged. You've prayed, you've hoped. But things don't seem to change all that much. Perhaps even your faith in God is beginning to wane just a bit. You're looking for answers, but they don't seem to be coming. And you're struggling. I once heard of a man from Jordan, a Christian who came to the United States, went to seminary, got his doctor's degree in theology, and he and his wife went back to Jordan to their homeland. It was during the time of the, the Gulf War and in the aftermath of that war, for the first time, Jordanian after Jordanian after Jordanian was coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That mission field that had been so barren became a tremendous harvest, so much so that the man and his wife came back to the States to recruit more people and to, and to, gain, to get more money to help them with this task. And while they were here, this man's wife went to the doctor and found that her throat was filled with cancer. They stayed in the States to, to see what they could do to keep his wife alive. And meanwhile, there was no one back in Jordan to, to keep the ministry going. And he said, God, it doesn't make sense. God, it, I can't understand. When you face these kinds of circumstances, I got to tell you, I don't have the answers. 
I wish I did. But there is a word from God for us that I believe helps us even when we don't get the answers that we want. And this word from God is found in Mark's gospel, chapter 5, in the passage we read just a few moments ago. This passage is not intended to answer all of our questions about suffering in the world, but it does give us it does give us a bit of an understanding of who God is in the context of painful and difficult experiences in our lives. I believe that God mourns over the pain that we experience. I believe that God mourns over our losses and the burdens that we bear, the burdens for ourselves and for our children and our parents and our friends. You can read the scriptures from cover to cover and you will never once find God taking our pain lightly. He weeps with us and he mourns with us. Our pain is his pain and God's desire is to heal us and to help us. Of course, we understand that we live in a fallen world with fallen people. And that truth means that we are going to face painful experiences that are not God's perfect will. Suffering and pain are not God's desire for his creatures. But because of our free will and the choices we make and because of our fallen condition in this fallen world, distress comes to us. And though God allows painful experiences to come to us, God does not orchestrate any of them. It's our fallen world, it's fallen people that orchestrates it. God is not the source of this woman's hemorrhaging. Her hemorrhaging is the result of living in a fallen world in which our our bodies do not function perfectly. And of living among fallen people who can't figure out why our bodies don't always function perfectly. And people who don't know how to fix our bodies when they don't function perfectly. And this little girl that it's a point of death, it's not because God strikes her down, but because her body is susceptible to illness and disease and because there's no one with the ability to remedy her problem. But in the midst of these two tragic situations, Jesus works and lives are changed. As much as God wants to see us whole, As much as God desires for our lives to be defined by ease. He is more concerned with our spiritual maturity. God wants us to be spiritually awake, to be spiritually strong, to be spiritually powerful. Because that's where peace and wholeness is only found. The peace that's a result of circumstances is fleeting. As the circumstances of life rise and fall, our peace will rise and fall. The peace that's the result of intellectual understanding is fleeting. As soon as something comes to us that is that's beyond us intellectually, and we all know things come to us that are beyond us intellectually, our peace wavers and fails. The peace that's the result of our accomplishments in this world, even spiritual accomplishments, is fleeting. The euphoria of the accomplishment fades and and subsequently so does our peace. But our spiritual connection with Jesus, 
is eternal. And so Jesus is most concerned about our faith in him, which is at the heart of this multifaceted story. Someone has said that the great soul prays, Lord, make me as big as my problem. And the little soul prays, Lord, let me off easy. And the giant soul asks, Lord, give me strength sufficient for a hard day. And the small soul begs, Lord, let me have a lighter load. Can I admit to you that I think I'm more apt to pray for God to let me off easy and to give me a lighter load? And maybe you are too. But God is always concerned more with the deeper things than I am. And this is certainly what we see in this story. And of course, anytime we talk about pain and suffering and subsequently healing, it is, it is far too big to be covered in, in one sermon. You simply can't say everything that could be said. You can't explain everything that might need to be explained. You can only, you can only reveal and expose one little part. And that's what I want to do today. Because that's what Mark does in this passage. Here is a woman who wants to receive Jesus' power in secret, and she does. The healing of her body is immediate. She touches his robe and she's healed. And she's content to leave it at that. But not Jesus. Jesus has deeper things in mind than, than simply her healing. Jesus is concerned about the condition of her faith. We don't know all that's going on in her mind as the scene unfolds, but we can surmise. Because of her condition, she has been an, an outcast from the synagogue and from normal life for 12 years. She's prevented from doing what other people do, from going where other people go. Her self-esteem must be virtually non-existent. How could it not be? She's embarrassed to be around people. She lives life in the shadows. She's tired of the stares and the whispers. She's at the end of her rope emotionally and physically and psychologically. She's gone to every physician. She's tried every treatment and none of it has worked. And in fact, she's getting worse. And so now she comes to Jesus. And she doesn't come to Jesus because the medical profession is a wrong choice. More often than not, God uses the wisdom that he has given to people in the medical professions to heal us. But sometimes, nothing human can be done. And this is one of those cases. She must know something of, of Jesus and his ministry of healing. She's heard the stories. Maybe she's seen people who have been healed and she's envied them and dreamed of being them. And when she hears that Jesus is in town, she can't do anything other than go to him and see what he can do. I suspect she probably isn't all that upset about the crowd. It allows her to remain anonymous. She really doesn't want to talk to Jesus because she's afraid that he might reject her. She doesn't want people wondering why someone like her is with Jesus. She just wants to be healed and go home. And so approaching the crowd, she assesses the situation. 
And she's thinking to herself, I don't really need to talk to Jesus. I don't need to see Jesus. I don't really need for Jesus to do anything. I just want to get close enough to touch his robe. I'll just slip in, touch him, be healed, and go home. And so she makes her way through the crowd and nudging a person here and brushing past another person there until she sees Jesus. There's still a couple of people in front of her, but if she can just squeeze her arm between them and she touches the folds of his robe and she's healed. I suspect that and it's as, it's as though waves of electricity shoot first through her fingers and up her arm and through her entire body. And immediately, immediately, she senses that she has been healed. After 12 years, you get to know what sickness and illness feels like. And she is astounded and grateful and probably overwhelmed. And for a moment, she stands there in shock. And then as what happened begins to dawn on her, she moves back, ready to disappear, to start her new life. It takes a few seconds for her to realize that the procession has stopped and for it to register that Jesus is talking. Who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? And her heart sinks. Meanwhile, the disciples are incredulous. Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean, who touched your clothes? Everybody's touching your clothes. There's a mass of people around you. What are you talking about? But Jesus knows. His spirit is so sensitive. And I think Jesus is thrilled that this woman is healed. But he's always concerned about deeper things going on inside of us. And so he stops. And he asks. Eventually, this woman who wants nothing more than to, than to experience healing in her own way and in her own terms, steps forward. And she falls at Jesus' feet. She admits that she's the one who touched him. And she pours out her whole story of her life and, and the pain and suffering and her healing. You can see her kneeling there. Shaking in fear with what Jesus is going to say and do. Is he going to chastise her? Is he going to berate her for contaminating all these people and, and him? But Jesus doesn't condemn her. He blesses her. Jesus affirms her faith and then sends her on her way in peace and in freedom. I suspect that had she made it out of there without being stopped by Jesus, she would still be healed physically. But I wonder if she would have, if she would have struggled emotionally and spiritually. If she would have felt guilty about stealing that miracle. If she would have been hesitant to tell other people because Jesus might find out. And so instead of proclaiming to the world what Jesus has done for her, she would have to keep it to herself. And Jesus knows that she needs to be set free from that. She needs to hear his words, go in peace and in freedom. And I think Jesus wants us to know that he loves to do good for us. 
That Jesus loves to come for us to come to him with our problems and our concerns and our burdens. And when we don't feel worthy, when we may even feel that we brought this on ourselves, it's precisely in those moments when we don't feel worthy that Jesus is most anxious for us to come and to experience his presence. I think he wants us to understand that we don't have to sneak up on him to get good things from him. You know, there is a, I think there's some inherent heresy that is in this woman's mind that she doesn't even realize. About thinking about sneaking up on Jesus and, and getting something from him. It implies that God is uninterested in doing good for us. So we have to get good from God any way we can without him knowing it. It implies that God can be manipulated and tricked in order to do good for us. And it implies that we're more concerned about our own well-being than God is. And sneaking up on God implies that all Jesus cares about is our physical healing. But Jesus, who asks, who touched my clothes, wants this woman who seeks his help to understand the deeper things of who he is and what he's come to do. That he's more interested in doing good than we are even in receiving good. That he loves to do good for us. And not because we have tricked him, but because he is love and compassion and grace and mercy. And Jesus stops and asks this question because as important as healing is, Jesus is concerned about every part of our being. Particularly, our faith. She believes her life will be better if she's healed, and she's right. But Jesus knows that her life will only be fulfilled if her faith is affirmed and if she makes a connection with Him. I mean, she's going to become ill again. She might not go through the same thing, but at some point she's going to get sick and her body is going to wear out. And if her well-being rests solely on her physical condition, then fear and doubt are going to return. But if her well-being rests in Jesus, then despite whatever pain or struggle, despite whatever physical condition in which she finds herself, she can still be at peace because she has faith in him. And I believe that all of us need our, we need our faith affirmed. We need to know that God is pleased with our steps and acts of faith. We need to be encouraged about trusting Jesus because nothing leads us to more steps of faith than being affirmed in the steps that we do take. But sometimes one of the, one of the most profound acts of faith and one of the most profound means of strengthening our faith is to tell people what God has done for us. We need to do that. Too many Christians live in secret and and 
are fearful that others are going to think they're fanatical if they tell people what Jesus has done. So we don't say much about what God has done in our lives. But God wants us to bear witness because it helps us and because it helps other people. And the people in that group standing around listening to this whole conversation needed to have their faith encouraged by hearing what Jesus had done for this woman. And surely no one in that crowd needed their faith strengthened more than Jairus. You see, there are actually two people here that are intimately affected by Jesus' question, who touched my clothes? For the woman, Jesus' question is an opportunity to affirm her and strengthen her faith and and to bear witness to God's grace to others in order to encourage their faith. But for Jairus, the synagogue ruler, the question is a means of testing his faith and of taking his faith to a deeper level than he could have ever imagined. You have to believe that Jairus is concerned and confused and conflicted by Jesus' question. I mean, I'm certain that he's already feeling a high level of impatience that Jesus isn't walking faster than he is. I can expect Jairus is thinking, if not saying, come on, Jesus, let's go. My little girl's sick. She's about to die. If we don't hurry, we're not going to make it. And you know, Jairus is hoping the crowd just sort of disappears because they're holding Jesus back from moving as quickly as he thinks he should. Remember, this whole thing starts with Jairus. He comes first. He speaks to Jesus first. Jesus is helping him first. And then Jesus stops the procession. And he turns to the crowd and he asks, who touched my clothes? The disciples answer Jesus, but I'm pretty sure Jairus is at the very least thinking the same thing. Jesus, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching your clothes. People are crowding around you. Come on, we don't have time. Let's go. Remember why we set out on this trip in the first place? Remember, Jesus, this is about me and my problem. We don't have time for anybody else's problem. Mark says in verse 32 that Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And you get the, you get the idea that Jesus stood there and waited for this woman for a bit of time. Jesus is willing to wait her out because what he needs to say to her is so important. And you can imagine Jairus is thinking, come on, Jesus, no one is saying anything. Nothing happened. Let's go. And then imagine the pain and the anguish, the anger and frustration, and even perhaps some bitterness and resentment that rushes into his heart as he hears his servants say, Jairus, forget it. She's already dead. And he's thinking to himself, Jesus just had to talk to her, didn't he? And as his emotions rise and as his spirit is sort of swept away in this river of of negativity and frustration, Jesus stops him short. He says, Jairus, I, I know what you're thinking. I understand your frustration. I understand your pain and, and even the sense of resentment and confusion. I know, but stay with me. Hang in there. Trust me. Trust me. Mark doesn't tell us how long it takes for Jairus to ponder Jesus' words. It seems as though he responds immediately, and maybe he does, but 
I suspect it's a bit more of a struggle than that. I mean, it would be for me. I mean, Jairus has revealed some pretty strong faith in being willing to come to Jesus. This is a humiliating thing for him to do. He's a man of power, and he comes, and he bows before Jesus and says, help me. And now Jesus is asking him to take an even greater step of faith. A step of faith that Jairus couldn't have imagined when this day started. But eventually Jairus says, okay. Jairus can't see in the moment that Jesus stopping to ask this question and then to converse with the woman who answers the question, that it's not intended to frustrate Jairus. It's not intended to impede healing his little girl. It's to help Jairus see the real power that Jesus has in this world. Because of Jesus' question, this little girl dies before Jesus can get there. Mark says that while Jesus was speaking, they came and said, she's dead. And I can't even imagine all the Jairus is thinking and feeling, even as they continue their journey. Woman, if only you hadn't bothered Jesus. If only you had just waited your turn. If only you just left Jesus alone. And then, Jesus, if only you hadn't stopped to ask that question. If only you had just ignored this woman, my little girl might still be alive. And we understand those questions because we've asked them. Haven't we had our moments when it seems as though God isn't acting as quickly as we want him to? Haven't we blamed others for getting in the way of what we want God to do in our lives? Haven't we prayed for God to follow our time frame only to be disappointed when he doesn't? And often the delays that we experience are not a few moments or a few hours or a few days. The process of waiting for God will often take weeks and months and years. And sometimes we never ever get to see what we've been waiting for. Sometimes we don't get to experience the miracle that the waiting allowed to happen. And whether we see it or not, God is continually saying to us, trust me. Because God never rushes and God is never late. His timing is always perfect. We might not always see it. We might not be able to mentally reconcile it. We might not be able to understand it. We might not always agree with it. God is the Lord of time. God is never the slave of time. He is the master of time. He is never caught off guard by time. He is never surprised by time. He's never burdened by time. He created time and time is his tool to use for his purposes. And he seems to be in the habit of using time to teach us the same lesson over and over again, to bring us to the same place over and over again, faith. 
He uses time as a means of teaching us that we can trust him. That we can trust him to never rush ahead and to never be late. So that healing for which you've prayed and prayed and prayed, will you trust that God's timing is perfect? The decision about the next steps for your future, about which you've been waiting and wrestling and, and fretting, will you trust that God's timing is perfect? Will you trust that when you are most interested in God working now, that his delay is the very best solution for resolving the situation and for easing the burden and for developing you into the spiritually mature person that he created you to be? What Jairus learns and what the readers of Mark's gospel learn and what God is wanting us to learn is that Jesus is not just Lord of nature and Lord of the, of the burdens and the struggles and the problems that plague us in this fallen world, but he is the Lord of life and death. And if he's the Lord of life and death, he's the Lord of anything and everything. And the question with which we are continually confronted is will we trust him? We can only learn this kind of faith, this kind of trust when we have to. No one more than God wishes that we could learn to trust through ease and comfort. But it simply doesn't happen that way. And God loves us so much not to do what needs to be done in order to make us the people of faith and strength and spiritual power that we've been created to be. Haddon Robinson once said to our class, as a young man, I used to think of life as a highway of potholes here and there. Now that I'm older, I sense that life is more like a country road with smooth, smooth places here and there. So as we walk the road of life with its potholes and with its struggles and its burdens, no matter what comes or doesn't come, will we trust Him? Please pray with me. As you contemplate the burden in your heart today. We're going to take just a few moments of silence. To declare to God that we trust him.
Heavenly Father, we are at different places in our journeys with you. But the call is the same. To trust. Father, for some of us, it is simply asking that you will help us to trust. May we see your goodness. May we understand your love for us. And may each of us today take a little deeper, a little deeper step of faith in you. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.